Hello and welcome to The Last Standy, a board game podcast coming to you from a trio of thrilling countries in Europe. I'm joined here today by Alessio. Hello. And Cara. Hi. And I'm your host, Fen. And today we're just going to be talking about one game, Uno, in single game, uh, Oathsworn. Uh, walk you through our format we're going to be using to avoid spoilers right after the last standee catch-up. So you weren't here last time. What's been up with you, Alessio? Oh, well, uh, I got uh, Oathsworn, for instance. <laughs> it was uh, pretty big news. Uh I got the base version, so I, I will talk about the standee version of the game today. And that aside, I started playing Carnegie, which is a heavy, heavy Euro game with very beautiful and streamlined rules. Uh, I already love it, but I have better impressions when I can put under my sleeve a few games. So that's mostly it for now. I I came back from vacation, so I'm here pretty relaxed. Actually, my brain is actually <laughs> fried again because there's a lot of work, there are a lot of games to play, which is always beautiful, and that's basically me today. So, what about you, Kara? Uh, well, I uh, just yes. Day, the day before yesterday I came back from my vacation, my first vacation in a decade or so. Um, Gotland is a really nice island fan. <laughs> yep, yep, there's a reason it's beloved for tourism. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, yeah, so um, I spent the last uh, two days kind of, you know, uh, tidying up, getting things in order. Um, I updated my uh, board game list which was a bit of a shock um, because my last um, known status was that i have played almost all of my games and now that i actually the first time in four months or so updated the list of games i own i noticed oh no i just forget <laughs> forgot to add a lot of games so um yeah my pile of opportunity grew a lot <laughs> today. <laughs> so yeah, um, and um, tomorrow I will probably scratch one of those games off of the pile of opportunity, namely Blood on the Clock Tower. Um, really looking forward to trying that out. Um, it's ever so good. It's very good, very entertaining content to watch as well. So it will be a small group, I think like seven or eight players, um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I just want to say that I appreciate how you call a pile of opportunity what I call shelf of shame. <laughs> if you don't put it on the shelf, it can't be a shelf of shame. It's a pile of shame then. No, but it doesn't work. It's a pile <laughs> of promise promise and opportunity it's alliterative <laughs> that's the whole key of shelf of shame is that it's a shush so <laughs> unless you call your floor your personal shelf in which case maybe you need more shelves and perhaps you need to consider your cleanliness habits uh, you know it's a, a pile of opportunity or i'd call it a pile of promise so it's like a stack of shame nearly too, too stretched Nearly. You nearly got there. <laughs> nearly. <laughs> nearly. Just a just a hair's width you missed by. 
All right, so, uh, Fen, how about you? Well, um, I've just finished, like, you know, dealing with one of the most demanding house guests I've ever had. It was an absolute nightmare, <laughs> I can tell you. Just terrible. They used my bicycle, they used electricity, they did all the things that guests are supposed to do when it was just, like, too much. Which is not true. Cara was um, very, uh, very welcome and is welcome to come back as well. Uh, so there was that. Um, on top of that, all of that, the really cool stuff is I got the minis for Tokaido for the Matsuri expansion. So my col collector's edition, yes, my collector's edition is now actually a complete collector's edition. Hooray! But, but that's old news from our Discord. No. <laughs> what's on the Discord is is not really like we, we don't sit here and read out what's in the Discord. People would fall asleep if we did. So this is news. This is a podcast and we talk about news and don't make this me let news. you some more. Okay, correct. Yeah. Yes. Um additionally, thanks to a nice chap in Greece, I got a few of the book promo investigators for Arkamara. Um which was great. Because they actually have not just that they have different artwork, which is nice artwork as well, but they actually have different weaknesses and um, unique cards. So there is a play style difference to them. Uh, like, you know, so that's nice. And I got Gloria, finally. So that was, she's busted as heck, but whatever. Um, and yeah, uh, of course, the reason we're talking is that Oathsworn arrived. And I'm waiting for my uh, my stuff from Garfield Games to come. It's arrived with you already, Kara, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it did. Mine's not due to arrive for at least another week for some reason, but whatever. It is what it is. Uh, that's mostly it. Apart from that, we are just at the end of a heat wave. We're due torrential downpour tomorrow and the day after. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. Um, just be, be like just growing up back home where it just rained every weekend. Fantastic. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, that's that's mostly all of the important stuff. Uh, Pam's been heartbroken since Cara left. Uh -huh. She, yeah, well, she, she's, she wears her heart on her sleeve, you know. She's a very, it's very barky dog and she can come across as aggressive when you first meet her because she doesn't understand how to say hello to people properly. We're trying to teach her, but... It's hard when you've got a, you never had the dog at a puppy stage. So, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, as you see, once, once you get past that, she'll sit and watch you eat breakfast outside <laughs> or, or, you know, just stare at you. Uh, yeah. So she, uh, she spent a bit of time staring through the gate, looking intently at the guest house door, just willing you to come out. But, uh, she's, she's settled with that now. She's, I think over it. Uh, but she'll probably be very happy to see you again, just the same as she'll be very happy to see my parents and um, my other guests I had over from the UK. She just falls in love with everyone and then it's like, what? No, don't leave, don't leave. Bark, bark, bark. So, yeah. I mean, she's a lovely dog. Um, oh, she is. And it's, uh, I, I, that's maybe a tip for, for all dog owners. Um, I think it's pretty easy to get along with almost any dog as long as you know what to look out for so as soon as i knew yeah that's the way she greets um i was fine with it you know um, i just i need to know what it means so um yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 
she had a, a rough day yesterday because we were the car was called in for a bit of like a recall adjustment nothing major but we you know we have an electric hybrid car um basically an electric car and it needed a couple of adjustments so we sat around uh under some trees and she gradually got more and more stressed with it until the point where she was just barking at people for walking by and i was just like these poor people are going to think she's a terrible dog and it's like it's just because she's completely stressed out of her mind and we can't take her out of the situation because we're stuck waiting for our car but still such is the case and um well we should get on with the actual game itself so format we're going with here is Oathsworn's very much a game about mystery boxes and surprises and unfolding stories uh, all of that kind of stuff um there's a very big deal made about it uh, even to the point that when you get the game, you'll either receive a bunch of mystery envelopes or mystery boxes that contain all of the details. And it tries to hold as much information from you so you can enjoy exploring the mysteries you go along. So we're going to start off by talking about everything that's like not a spoiler. So that's pretty much like the characters, the rules, the, the sort of the overall setting, um, the physical components, the mechanics and all that stuff. And then... We'll warn you when we're going off into spoilers and we're going to separate each section by chapter. So I'll be like, now we're going to talk about chapter one and there'll be everything contained about chapter one in there. And then like chapter two will just be chapter two. Plus, you know, we might reference back to earlier content we've already talked about, but we won't provide any spoilers going forward. So if you are like, oh, I don't want anything spoiled. Cool. We're not going to do that for you. Um, you can stop listening whenever you want to and then please come back and finish listening once you've caught up. Additionally, we're only going to talk about the first seven chapters. That's enough to, that I had time to play with while Kara was here. Um, and I've had to uh, stop since and we're going to redo it with the story mode to properly do it. And we, you know, I'll talk about that in a moment. So we're not going to spoil anything after chapter seven at all. Um, and that's more or less the concept. So let's get into the game itself. And I'll start with a little overall, like try and put a button on what the game is. Oathsworn is a one to four player cooperative boss battling adventure game. It's like Kingdom Death mashed with Sleeping Gods and Seventh Continent. That's what I kind of call it as. Um, with a lot more leaning on to like storybook game and boss battling game. But there's also puzzles and things built into the story section. And ultimately, it's it's very much its own thing. It's grim fantasy. Um, there's definitely some Warhammer influences in there. But there's also a whole load of other like, I'm pretty sure like Pullman's works are uh, referenced as well. Uh, a lot of fun. So... Overall thoughts? How do you guys think of it? Okay, let's start with this. Um, well, I have to say that this game is actually, uh, of course, beautifully made. It's uh, it, it shows that a lot of care has, has put uh, into it and a lot of effort. There's maybe a bit of naivety here and there but we will talk about that and it's absolutely not uh, not harmful at all uh, the game is uh, uh, you you talked about the sleeping gods uh, uh, 
I kind of agree and kind of disagree. Uh, a lot of people, when this game came out, uh, talked about uh, the, the fact that the story could be on rails. Uh, meaning that uh, uh, the gameplay is like uh, uh, you have a chapter, in this chapter you play a story phase, then you go to an encounter phase. Uh, in the story phase uh, you actually do uh, a few things which will bring you to the encounter and a lot of people said uh, well since you are going to have that encounter anyway uh, the story is probably on rails. Uh, a lot of comments have been done uh, about this. I have to say, after playing it, I am nowhere near completion. I, I went up to chapter 11 right now, story mode, so uh, I'm about halfway. Uh, I have to say that the story is a bit on rails, yes. So, uh, basically, um, the, the fact is, if you already played the chapter and the story, there's no way you can perform bad. So uh, it's true that the story is uh, a bit guided. Uh, you have multiple patterns, uh, they are beautiful, the story is beautifully narrated. My point is that it's uh, actually not important that the story is on rails because the story is good. Actually the story was half the reason I backed this game and I'm happy of how it's written and how it, how it plays it starts slow, it gives you time to to get accustomed to the world, to the world building, to the setting, and then a lot of stuff happens. It's beautiful. And that's my opinion about this in general, actually. Yeah, I would still say um, that the whole framework of saying it's like, uh, um, like Sleeping Gods is that it uses a storybook. Like oh just, yeah, ju just yeah. like fighting fantasy and those kind of things, um, and to be brutally honest, by its very nature, the same with open world games, they are actually kind of on rail. If you're not procedurally generated, which is very difficult to do for a board game, it is on rails. Um, I do want to get it in now. Uh, that yes, the narration is fantastic. It's James Cosmo, who is a <laughs> a long-standing, brilliant actor. Uh, he is Jor Mormont. Yes. From Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yes, that's one of his less important roles, but the <laughs> most one of his most recent. So yeah, um, it, it's really nicely done, and um, well, it's just it's just great narration, really, really good narration, which is important. Uh, I'm. It's been a while since I've played a narrative based game where I thought, yeah, they've they they've got a good person narrating, and they did here. Yeah, his tone is actually perfect for the setting. Hmm. So, Kara, what are your overall thoughts on the game? Um, so, I, I can't comment on the uh, narration. Um, I haven't heard it. And um, also not on the story mode. So, um, we only played the instant action mode, which should be called mostly instant kind of instant mode yeah. but um delay addiction mode it's it's really not instant yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i'm somewhat torn i enjoyed playing it overall um i 
did not like how the story portions of this instant mode went. Um, I, I didn't, I mean, uh, yeah, it's the instant mode, but um, I felt like th that was really railroaded. Yeah, basically uh, it says, oh yeah, you decide to do this and then, then this happens and also this. And now you have to choose between these two options and no matter what you choose, it continues the same way. And um, so that was kind of okay. And then you had rows in between, which could really screw you up because you could lose hit points in the story mode, uh, in the story phase, and then start with less hit points in, in the encounter and thought, okay, that's just because of a bad dice roll now. Um, so that was something I definitely did not like. I also did feel like the setting didn't really open itself to me. Um, I, I needed, I think like four chapters or so until I had a vague idea what this iron road is they are keep talking about. And um, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe in the rule book, there's like a general introduction to the setting, but if you just start with the instant storybook, you are Actually not. In. Uh, you have a bit of introduction in the first paragraph, but it's true. Uh, I know about the wire road because I backed the Kickstarter and there were a lot of lore beats uh, by Paul De Stefano, the writer of the story, and uh, one of the main writers of the story, uh, and the creator of the setting, actually. Uh, I think that I did not catch any further reference to that in the story mode, except, of course, uh, find. Uh, it's spoilery, so I won't tell that. But uh, no, 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 you, you don't get any glimpse about what is the world except at the start, at the very start, in the very first paragraph, and in the third or fourth chapter, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, kind of thrown in and uh, sink or swim. Um, but yeah, the encounters I really liked, they were, they were very varied so far and nice mechanics so yeah overall i'm not sure i would want to pay the amount of money it costs and this is very interesting because actually i have the op the opposite uh, uh, the opposite impression of the first kickstarter actually because uh, i got the, the the base pledge that was 99 dollars which for the amount of stuff that's there uh, uh, think of it like uh, I don't know this is a very long game and uh, once you know the story uh, replayability maybe would be a bit hindered maybe you will want to play uh, single encounters but we will talk about it when we talk uh, about encounters uh, the, the replayability is what it is but basically when you play this game you have played something like a pandemic legacy uh, pandemic legacy is actually now 85 dollars for 99 you get a lot more so uh, i kind of disagree i understand what you say you are right in a in a lot of stuff a lot of things but uh, i think that is actually pretty good value for the money 
I think I have to agree in respect to the core game. It's definitely very good uh, value for money. Um, you get hips plastic characters and you get standees for all of the encounter monsters you'll face along the way. Uh, that's very... like I, I looked at just the box. I went, okay, if I just got on the core box and none of this extra uh, chrome and bells and whistles, is would have this been a good deal? And I was like, yeah. Um, as a uh, somebody who's a painter and likes having miniatures, um, then, you know, if it had just been standees, I actually would have been fine as well because uh, I think the standees are quite nicely done. I, I did get the standee edition. Um, so I got standees and the actual models um yeah so i do think the core game itself represents very good value for money i i'm gonna there's two boxes i don't think are very good value for money um one of them is the terrain box um the terrain has some nice walls and some kind of ugly buildings which they're okay but they're very big and they obscure visibility a lot and then um some very ugly trees like very ugly uh, to the point that there were we were playing and i was occasionally thinking maybe i just put all the terrain box away and i pull out the cardboard tokens because that may look nicer um but we stuck with it so that's one that i i don't think is a good good value for money akara yeah i i was always happy when a terrain got removed. Yes, <laughs> I love this comment when you said that earlier. I love this. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, so, like. 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 Yeah. Especially like the buildings just obscure so much visibility, and some of the models just collide into the trees whenever you try and move them around. That happened a lot in chapter three in particular. Um, a lot of collisions between models and uh, terrain. And not in a mechanical sense, just as in, uh, I'm trying to move this piece and this tree's in the way. Uh, so I, I would say you could probably, you could definitely live without a terrain box. The other big miss, I think, is the armory box. It's a lovely idea. Do not get me wrong. And the engineering's absolutely fantastic. But there's some... There's some issues with like switching stuff back and forth. Uh, if you're going to play with unpainted models, then why would you really care about being able to swap the weapons? Secondly, generally, you're kind of like swapping an axe for a hammer that doesn't really look like the picture of the actual hammer you've got. And if you get unique weaponry, um, like very special stuff, generally from a specific encounter, then th there's just no sculpt for it whatsoever. Uh, on top of that, uh, I'm... The Penitent and the Warden are fast hovering towards me considering gluing them. Uh, now the reason is, is the Penitent and the Warden are both their one-handed or one-handed weapon and shield or two-handed. Now the shield arm on both of them, and this is the only place where this has happened, right? All of the other things are well done, um, but they, they're, they're designed to be detachable and swapped in and out. And as a consequence, they have a gravity-based pin system. So they have long pins that go in and they sink inside the model at a diagonal angle. So if the arm outside is pulling down away from the model, it's pulling against the model itself. It's There's a video on it on YouTube. Uh, I think it's Jamie who or whoever it is who's designed the models talks about the engineering in it. And it's a really impressive piece of engineering. It blows Kingdom Death's multi-part survivors out of the water. No wonder they're going away. 
Um, but to get back to the point, the Penitence and the Warden both have a shield arm. The shield arms are like the heaviest arms you can get on a model because it's one arm holding a big like piece lump of plastic and they have horizontal pins that are about half the length they need to be. So as a consequence, the Warden and the Penitent who we are playing with were constantly in danger of arms falling off. Even though I glued the torsos together, they were still like major risks. When I switched them to holding two-handed weapons, that went away. It all clicked together well. Uh, but yeah, I, I just, ultimately I was looking at this armory box and I was like, if I paint these models, if I actually have the time to paint them, that means I have to sit down and I have to paint this model and then I have to paint every single weapon option and I have to varnish everything to a fairly thick degree to take into account stuff swapping back and forth. That's a lot. Some people may be perfectly happy to do that, but the speed that I can paint at and the limited windows in which I can paint in these days, I just, no, I just don't have the time for it. So that's, the armory box I don't think was worth it. Uh, it felt like I didn't get enough for what I paid and it also felt like I got too much. It doesn't matter what happened, I don't think I was going to be happy with that box. I want to say another thing about the armory box, which is once you swap arms, you cannot put the miniatures back in the insert of the core game. That's also bad. <laughs> Yeah, they don't fit into the vacuum-formed wells. The armory box has four... Uh, it has a whole tray with four big rectangular deep wells where you're just put, supposed to put the miniatures once you've changed them. Um, so you could get away with just transporting the armory box around if you were taking it to a friend's house to play or whatever. But considering how well everything fits into the core box, um, I, 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 I don't see the point. So that's my advice to people who are going to reback this when it returns to Kickstarter or to back it for the first time. Probably back it for the first time is a better way to describe that. Uh, think very carefully if you want the terrain box and the armory box because that's a lot of shelf space they take up and I don't think they add much in the way of value to the experience. In contrast though, I do think the miniatures absolutely do. Um, the whole design of the two mystery boxes you get, that everything's like nicely numbered you pull it out and you pop it down and then hand it to someone to open up and the inside is a well done plastic insert that protects the model um it's it's a bit of an event i have one here because i have the first chapter monster downstairs with me um and it's it's really well done and i think more fun than opening an envelope and get the standees out uh, but that still has a bit of that mystery box fun to it as well the sculpts of the monsters are varied. Um, I will talk a little bit more about some of them in detail uh, when we get into the various chapters. Um, but the, there's no doubt the scale of them is really impressive. Like they are, they're big. I mean, the models are all big. They're all big in the way I think they should be. But the 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 encounter creatures can be massive. Yeah, uh, one thing uh, to, to tell people who have never saw a Oddsworld Mini, just have a look at it. They are on a 45mm scale, so basically uh, 10mm more than usual model scale. Yeah, and that's, that's just in height, so if you want to try and visualise that, imagine your normal standard games workshop Mini, and then everything is about 30% bigger. Yeah, up 
left, right, all of it. Um, this is a scale I have said for a long time that I think boss battling games should go for. Um, because you have typically less than a dozen miniatures on the board at a time. So make them impressive, make them stand out, make them very distinctive and easy to recognise. Which, you know, i got to say, the models, from a technical standpoint, are all brilliant. And I really appreciate how distinctive the silhouette of each Oathsworn is. That's very readable on the table to look and figure out who's who, and only maybe you might confuse the Warden and the Penitent occasionally. Yeah, exactly. Warden and Penitent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are, they're the only two who um, are somewhat similar when unpainted. But all the rest, like, incredibly distinctive. And all of them are very characterful. And the small list, and, and the small list is always the witch. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say the ranger is actually quite small as well, but because of her pose and her bow, she does look a little bit yeah larger. <laughs> yeah, but I guess taller. Yep, I guess that should branch us across into talking about the classes. Um, so Kara and I and my partner played with the Penitent, the Warden, the Asuras Warrior and the Huntress for most of our run. I've also since played a little bit in the first couple of encounters with the Harbinger and the Blade and the Ranger and the Kerr. So I've, I've had a bit of experience with all of those. So which ones did you play with Alessio? Oh, I played initially with uh, Kerr, the the witch, the the priest, and the penitent. Uh, after some events later, I swapped the the priest with the Ursus, and I kept using it. Uh, I am about to get to a certain chapter. When that chapter comes, I will probably swap in the ranger and uh, and and another character. <laughs> it's actually not a spoiler, but uh, I'll keep it because uh, people could not know about the chapter actually. So. Uh, at the moment, I played uh, these five characters and I began studying the Ranger, but I am not yet proficient with that. Yeah. So for listeners who are not familiar with Oathsworn, characters can be played in one of two modes. You can play them in a companion mode or a full mode. Now, the first handle is companion mode. This is very much like your traditional dungeon crawler style of play. They basically they have two actions in a turn that they can play. Um, and you can spend an action to move up to four spaces or attack or do a special ability. They'll have two special abilities per encounter that you'll choose at the start, and it's all referenced on a nice little card, keeping it together in one place. So they are, they're very simple. I actually think they're simple enough that you could hand those characters to younger players and they could engage with the game no problem at all as long as they're fine with the themes and the creepy monsters and everything which let's face it a lot of kids are kind of cool with beating up scary monsters it's it's cathartic um i mean i mean they are very powerful they're very powerful i i revert, sat down and i took a look at the penitent to figure out what was going on i realized that level one the penitent has like the two most powerful abilities that the full penitent can have and he uh, and he has them on cooldown so he can just use them almost you know once what each one once around and that's what pushed the power of them up quite a bit which is a fantastic handle for people who look at the full version and go 
that's too much for me. It's great to know that you could dip your toe in and learn the game on the simpler version. But also it's reduced load for people who are solo playing. Trying to f solo play four full characters would be overwhelming. Um, and does anyone want to take the field of explaining how a full character works? Huh. Well, um, with a full character, first of all, you have your character board um, where you um, have uh, one or two special abilities that are only minor things uh, you get. Um, for example, the Ursus Warbear uh, gets one combat token at the start of the encounter. And the second ability is that uh, their uh, cards in defense mode yield more defense, but that's already on the card. So there's that. Um, and then you can keep track of your might dice on your character board. Um, I'll get to that shortly. And um, your animus, basically your stamina, which uh, is used for actions. And um, then you have your cards. Um, there are basically two types of cards. Uh, first of all, you have equipment cards. Um, those are limited by common sense. Uh, of course, you if you have a two-handed weapon card, you can't have any more weapons. Uh, if you have a shield and a one-handed weapon, you are full there. You can have an armor, you can have a gear, and so on. Um, not sure if there's actually more. No, there's not. Four yeah, so cards maximum, yes. Yeah, maximum four equipment cards. And then you have seven ability cards. Um, those have a, a cooldown number or a battle flow number. Uh, not sure how exactly it's called. Um, and uh, these range from zero to three. Basically, you have one card with zero, two cards with one, two cards with two, and two cards with three. And uh, when you level up and you get additional abilities, uh, before an encounter, you can choose which ones you take, but you will always have seven ability cards. One zero, two ones, two twos, two threes. Um, when it's your turn, um, you can look at the cards in your hand, ability and equipment cards, and um, play these cards by paying the necessary stamina um, or animus um, from your uh, reserve and um, putting them around your character board at the appropriate spot. Um, on the bottom there is zero, left is one, top is two, and right is three. So if a player two card, you put it on top uh, above your character board. And um, that's basically it at first. You also can spend stamina to move. For one hex you move, you have to spend one stamina. And that is why companions are so strong. Yeah. <laughs> one animus for movement. Yeah. Um, you, you don't move four when you play with your regular... Uh, character board <laughs> yeah because basically at the beginning of each round everyone refreshes their animus and at least the characters i've seen uh, might be there are others who are slightly different but um those all refreshed six animus yeah so basically for each turn you have six animus available on average um sure you can keep some over um 
up to a limit. For example, Vios's warware has maximum of nine animus. So the beautiful thing three... is that it's racial. Humans are always eight of maximum reserve and sixth regeneration. The Ursus and the, 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 the non-humans have nine, and the the I think that the AV, uh, the Arbinger, and the, and the Adendri have seven of regeneration. So it's racial. It's actually pretty consistent. A nice touch. Yeah, there's um, it, you're almost there. So the uh, AV is seven of nine. You know, not a Borg, but um, so, so seven regen, nine maximum, and then both of the Adrendi are seven with seven max. So yeah, so you can uh, with the user swabber if you kept three over in a turn uh, or in a round, next round you'd have nine available, but you can't have more. So yeah, spending four to move is quite a lot of investment. Um, so, and then comes the most important part um, of this whole game mechanic, the battle flow mechanic. Um, as I said, you play your cards around your character board. Um, at the end of the round, um, you get all cards back into your hand that lie at the zero position. Um, so what about my card I played at the two position? Well, as soon as you play a card, all cards that lie in that position already move down one. So yeah. if I have two cards at the two position and I play another two card, those two cards that already lay there move to the one position. Yeah, just to correct one minor point, uh, play-wise it feels the same, but the refresh happens at the start of the round. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just easy to forget because you don't refresh right at the start of the combat um, uh, if you get ambushed. So that's like, yeah. But anyway, everything else, yeah. Yeah, th th there's also the fact that uh, when you battle, uh, the action of moving the cards... Uh, counterclockwise i think widershins is uh, is called the battle flow when you battle flow from position zero you get the cards which are in position zero right in your end right then so you can play them again uh, for instance a thing that witch does is to spam fireflies fireflies elemental infusion fireflies elemental infusion you can do that once because you have only one zero card which you get at the start of your next turn uh, back in your end anyway damn it i i i did not know that um, and that's beautiful it, it was it was in there in the rules explanation but the trouble is that uh i as the huntress and my partner as the Asuras were not using it because we were not battle flowing anywhere near as much as you on the Warden. And I, you were sat on the other side of the table, so <laughs> I kind of thought you were doing it because you were doing so much and you were refreshing everything so often that... I, no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of situations where I thought, damn it, if only I could get this card back yeah. this turn somehow. <laughs> but <laughs> that, that's... damn it. That, okay. <laughs> that, that's that's the smart part of the battle flow system uh, I have to say that in the first uh, six seven chapters you don't use that uh, very much because uh, you are uh, you have uh, uh, a very low animus pool so unless you got uh, a, a lot of plus two animus tokens you won't be able to leverage this but once you are around chapter 10 11 it begins to click a lot that's beautiful 
Yeah, well, you just talked about tokens, Alessio. Do you want to expand on that? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, the game uh, features several tokens. They are your modifiers. Uh, they are part of the leveling up, but I think we will cover up that later because leveling up is brilliant, actually. Uh, the uh, part about tokens is that you get them during the story mode or during the instant action mode or you have them as bonuses and they allow you to do... Uh, a lot of additional things in your turn. The plus two animus token I talked about is basically a token which gives you instantly two action points. Uh, you get them from your reserve, so if you don't have them in reserve because your animus is depleted, you cannot get them. But of course, since you can play tokens at any time, you will just use them when you are uh, when when you need them. Uh, there is a redraw token and maybe it's important to say that uh, this game has both cards and dice to resolve uh, checks. Uh, yeah. They are basically the same uh, because the probability in the end is... Not quite. No. Okay. No. Um, the, with I the just decks... counted the, bla the, the blanks. Yeah. So, no, yeah. no. With the decks not refreshing oh, like, yeah. no, no, immediately... No, no. Um, no, no, yeah, th th that's the important part, actually, yeah. uh, and that's why you must spend any moves uh, to refresh cards if you need to do that uh, at some particular point. Cards are a deck which is basically three times the faces on die, uh, so uh, ex except for this, uh, they are the same, but what happens? When you uh, draw cards, you basically uh, increase the chance of the leftover cards you will draw in later turns. So basically, uh, you can, uh, you will know that in the end you will have the average distribution, of course, because you'll draw all of the cards. But in a specific moments, since you know that the, there are 18 cards in a deck, uh, there are six blanks, which are very bad because if you draw two blanks during any check, that check is a failure. Okay, uh, so you don't want to draw blanks. Now, if you know that there are seven cards in the deck and you already have already drawn uh, five blanks, you will know that you can draw all of that seven cards and you will not fail because there's just one blank left in the rest of the deck. All yes. This, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you, uh, like myself, learn how to card count so you could go to casinos and get kicked out of them yeah. earning too much in blackjack, true story, um, then... Uh, on a smaller scale, of course, then cards are quite advantageous. Um, I will say we played dice. Uh, we played dice mainly because I didn't have sleeves for the cards, and I was like, these decks are going to get shuffled <laughs> a lot. Uh, I can't I can't get sleeves this month, so we'll just use the dice. But I do have some comments on those after you finish with the, the cards. Carry on. Yeah, that's, that's important, especially with the monster, because you are advised to play cards with the monster. So uh, we will talk about it with the AI of the monster, uh, which will you know in advance most of the time. Uh, that and knowing that the monster uh, has depleted some of the cards, you will know if next attack uh, will hit for a lot or not. Uh, all the same, uh, in this game you can always switch between cards and dice, so actually if you want to take advantage of the system you can do it big time, because uh, when when you draw cards uh, you just uh, 
have drawn a lot of blanks, for, for instance, you'll know that you will get a critical next time or you will get a lot, a very big, uh, you will do a check with very, with very big numbers. So you just begin rolling dice until you really need those cards for uh, the big check, for the big damage or stuff like that. So uh, that's it because you have a redraw token. The redraw token is a token, if you spend it, you can reroll one die or redraw one card. Uh, this is of, obviously of the utmost importance because uh, two blanks is a failure and you have a 33% uh, probability two faces on a d6 of uh, drawing a blank and that's a, a, a small design uh, thing, a small design quirk I will want to highlight later. Anyway, all dices have the same chances of doing stuff, only numbers change. Uh, I, I understand why this is done, but the highest die really should have had one blank. <laughs> anyway, uh, there are empower tokens. Uh, these are beautiful. Basically, you have uh, dice of four colors like and cards of four colors. Like I said, the, the probability is the same, but the numbers change. They get higher. Uh, you get uh, white cards, yellow, red and black. The black are the most powerful, the white are the least powerful. You start with white, you can always decide what to roll, what to draw, and uh, the number in advance, and then you can empower these checks. Uh, how do you do that? You spend an empowerment token and then you can upgrade three times your dice or cards, which means you can uh, uh, go white to uh, black in one uh, in one go because you get uh, three empowerments on that roll white to yellow yellow to red red to black or you can empower three dice for three white dice to uh, yellow for instance so uh, that's basically it for the retro token there's the battle flow token which is very important and it's it's one on the one of the main ways you can get cards back uh, for free because you spend it and all cards on your player card uh, get battle flown one position so uh, you get basically everything that is zero in your end without playing the zero card and that gives you the chance of playing more cards. Uh, there's the the uh, I'm thinking of the special tokens now. Ah, there's the defense token, of course. Defense is uh, very weird but effective. Uh, basically, it's a score uh, you used to div to divide by that the damage you receive. So if you receive if you are receiving 10 damage and you have a defense of four, you go 10 divided by four, you get 2.25, which is rounded down to two. So you get two damage. So one point of defense is actually very very important, and it's the difference between uh, getting damage a lot or getting no damage at all. I have to say, uh, except in the first two chapters, it's always at least one damage, but you strive to get that. And uh, that's it, I think, for the basic tokens. You have a couple of other, uh, a few other tokens. There are status tokens, which are inflicted by, by encounters, so I won't talk about those uh, right now. And there is the Lethality token, which is a mechanic used by Kerr, which is basically a, a, 
not linearly, I think geometrically, not even a weirdly increasing empowerment token you get yeah. by playing the curve. Yeah, yeah. The the one lethality token gives you one empowered, and five lethality gives you ten empowered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you gradually build them with the cur. It's an interesting variant on the old backstabbing mechanic that most assassins and rogues have. Yeah, one, two, four, seven, ten. I think it's the progression. Yep, that's exactly it. So uh, that's basically it about counters, and I already told you the mechanics of how you perform a check. So that's basically it. You, you do checks against uh, everything. Even combat is a check because when you attack, you just roll your might, which is uh, the, the dice, the colored dice your weapons give you, plus all the white dice you want to roll. And as usual, if you roll two blanks, you fail. Uh, aside, aside for that, uh, whatever you roll is the damage you inflict which is divided by the, f the defense of your target and that's the damage left uh, one thing I left out is that you can crit so you can perform a critical uh, one face on each die as a critical face which means that you can uh, just draw an additional card. If you draw blank in this additional card, it doesn't count. So it's a perfectly safe thing to do. And when you crit, you just increase your damage. Uh, that's the nice part when you want to roll black die, is that the crit for black die is five points of damage. <laughs> so that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Another nice thing... I. I don't know if you did say this or not, but another nice thing is that you get to see how your crits perform before you decide if you want to do redraws or not, which is very helpful because you can yeah. sort of take a look and go, well, if I if I roll at least a one on this missed dice here, then I'm going to score this much and that's going to do this many wounds. I will it say um, the, the, the defense calculation is not too bad, but definitely for people who are not math inclined, you will probably want somebody there to quickly explain... You're dealing this many wounds. I do like how the defense tokens interact and you can just step over that barrier of like, oh, I'm taking two wounds, but if I spend a token because of the multiplicative way that it works, I'm only taking one. Even though, like, say, oh, I've got six defense and they're dealing t uh, 12 damage. Uh, that's two wounds. But if I spend one token, just one, I go to seven defense and now I'm only taking one wound. It's brilliant. Really enjoyable. Yeah, that, that's very smart. It's weird at start, but it's very smart. Uh, you understand it when you get, uh, yeah, when you start taking in uh, 12 damage, you understand why it's done, like the way it's done, and it works. Uh, one thing important, one important thing which works only if you are playing with, uh, with a full character is that when you are attacked, you, your Oathsworn can decide to, before, the enemy rolls or draws cards, uh, you can decide to discard a card from your end and play it for its defense value. Uh, each card on the bottom has a defense value written. If you think that uh, uh, it's important to say that the enemy does not crit and does not miss. So whatever it's rolled, you get whatever it's rolled. Uh, which is usually yeah. in the tens or twenties, so yeah. it's a lot. It uh, is. It, it's it's nicely done. 
because you have to make that decision. You you get to see what they're gonna roll, like, but you don't know what result they're gonna get from those dice, uh, which is pretty cool. I did like as well how you some items can be played for defensive stuff, but they don't battle flow. Yeah, exactly. When you play an item, uh, the item does not trigger battle flow. They are most uh, most assuredly the only thing that doesn't trigger battle flow. They battle flow along with other stuff when other things c- cause battle flow, but the items themselves, when you play them, do not cause battle flow. Ah, another thing about playing a card for defense, you get that card for defense. You must play it in advance before seeing the dice. Uh, in contrast with the defense tokens, which you can use at any time after seeing the dice, so you can play only the tokens you need, uh, the card which you discard for defense causes battle flow. So it's a strategic decision to keep exactly that card, even if it has not a high defense value, just because you want to battle flow before it's your turn. Too hard? Too difficult? <laughs> no, no. I was just thinking it's time for us to talk about the characters and I was just busily sorting them into the complexity order so we can walk through them like that. Um, so just to have a brief talk about them. But also I was thinking how enjoyable the dance that the cards do around your board uh, achieves. <laughs> it is very, very much like a, I think a dance, the best way to describe it. Ah. I know one of the boards is yeah. upstairs, that's why I'm confused. All right, there we go. So the game recommends um, that you play with simpler characters to start with. I ignored that. Um, <laughs> and uh, it even ranks all of the... Well, uh, I'm sorry, but when you have a character who puts traps down, I'm taking it. Like, de- 100% <laughs> traps on it in my jam. Um, so we're going to walk through it briefly just to give you an overview of what each one's like based on the tropes and then if we have played with them we may have some comments and everything um so first up on the simplicity uh, the most simple of the characters listed is um the exile Tide, the exile uh, the exile is basically a barbarian i think is the best way to describe it um he can use like one-handed and two-handed weapons and wear cloth and leather armor um he won't use daggers spears staffs and bows uh, it's an interesting little bit because the concept of him is he's exiled from the Scar tribes. Um, so, like, <laughs> whatever he's... Whatever Spoiler. he's done to get out of it. Hey, it says it right on the back. He's exiled from the Scar tribes. <laughs> yeah. It's right here. I could read it, but I'm not going to because it's a lot of text. But each character has a, a little shtick on them. So he's a difficulty one character. Um, you played him, did you, Alessio? Uh, no, actually, I didn't. I didn't right. play the exile because it was really too simple. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> difficulty yeah. one is is too low. It's really uh, too low. <laughs> uh, I turn my nose up at difficulty one. I'm Alessio. I'm too good for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I'm too good for that. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, but if you if you know the barbarian trope, you pretty much have a good idea how this character will play, and he sells right into that. Then there is the ranger, who in most games would be an elf ranger, but She's not. It's a um, tree. Yes. It's a female it, it, tree. <laughs> it's basically a dryad. Well, they, they're called the A-Dendry. Um, she's one of two. She's very much like if you want to play a Legolas type character, you pew-pew bow. 
there she is. Uh, I did like the little um, law piece that says that they uh, grow their bodies within their own, uh, grow their arrows within their own body. Yeah, they flesh cool. their own arrows. Eh, 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 eh. A dendry. Dendry, yeah, like uh, dendros, I guess. Uh, that's Greek for tree. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, they're dryads. Um, not hammer dryads, though. Uh, then we got the, uh, I think there's only one two difficulty character. That's the priest. You said you, you used the priest a bit. Yeah, right? I, I used the priest. I can understand because why it's uh, difficulty too. Because uh, its ability is to regen one point of health at the end of the turn if he has just three health. And uh, he can uh, heal other characters, healing in Opsworn, it's always uh, you give back a few hit points to someone, but you spend hit points in doing that. So it's very useful because the priest is the only character who could regenerate the, the, the stuff it heals. And it's kind of decent as a tank. He has a way to generate defense tokens. Uh, other than that, he has basically no attack. It's always the second action on his on his cards. So basically, you always do plain attacks with it with him. If mm -hmm. you don't keep it with a shield, he cannot tank very very long or very effectively. Yeah. So speaking of tanks, the next character we have is the one that Kara played. That's the warden. Wow. Yeah. So do you like to tell everyone a little bit about the warden, Kara? Yeah, sure. So um, the one is, um, I think, like a, a classic fighter with um, a wide range of weapons they can use. They can use uh, two-handed weapons. They can use one-handed weapons with a shield. Um, their abilities um, also are somewhere in between like they do have great offensive abilities but also like uh, taunt ability um, to protect others and um, cards that uh, give defense tokens so um, yeah at later levels depending on how you want to play them you can either play them very offensively or very defensively or somewhere in between so and the um, very characteristic thing about them is their ability to battle flow a lot because they have uh, one of their special abilities is to battle flow one card and they can use this once per round at any time so um, that's that's I, I really liked it because that's the kind of puzzle I enjoy you know sitting there and thinking okay wait, if I use my ability now to better fill this card over here and then play this card and then this, and suddenly <laughs> everything is in place one, and next turn I can play a one card and get everything back. So, um, yeah, that's something I really enjoyed about playing them. And, and they have a very special interaction with the witch. Exactly, um, that's beautiful. <laughs> you can bounce chain lightning out of it. Off of it. <laughs> Yeah, basically they um, they and however many characters around them uh, they choose uh, are immune to the witch's area of effect abilities. <laughs> there's a, there's a witch spell which is chain lightning. You basically make it bounce back and forth between the warden and the monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it's a, a fun little um, pre-baked in duo that you can play warden and witch. 
but also quite nicely it turns out the warden and the witch are both fairly effective played separate from each other which is a good thing uh, there we have everybody's favorite character which is the asurus warbear um, yeah <laughs> she's very cool she is your traditional gigantic individual with a two-handed weapon um a lot of like strength based abilities she uh, defends for four with a card yep yep she has extra defense baked into all of her cards it's different the way that the warden and the penitent play they kind of have their defense baked into their character with their shield and their armor and then a little bit extra from the cards. She gets to get extra on her cards to make up for the fact that she's not as heavily armoured because she doesn't use shields, which is neat. It's a good way of differentiating the... Um, giving her an active defence, so to speak. So it mechanically does feel quite different. And the most important thing about the warbear, she is very good at destroying the awful terrain. Yeah. Yeah. Not not ju not just that uh, she can toss toss yes. scar tribe. <laughs> yes. she can. It's she beautiful. Can. She she can pick up and throw civilians as well. If required. Yeah, of course. It's very enjoyable. Uh, then we just mentioned him. Uh, there's the penitent. The penitent is the most darkest dungeon of all of the characters. Yeah. It's like. Uh, he's like self-flagellation. He's incredibly Warhammer. Uh, in, in Terminator well. armor. He has yeah. Terminator's armor all over yes. there. <laughs> yes, he has purity seals everywhere and um, and he's busy whipping himself. He, you'd find him in a penitent engine probably in a Warhammer <laughs> world. He is a tank who benefits from taking damage. Um, yeah. And he has, I think, if I remember correctly, a little bit of healing as well, which is neat. <laughs> Um, he, uh, I, we had him as our companion uh, character. The companion version of him is really a, tough. A powerhouse, like, yes. He was so often nearly the last one standing. Uh, just a co consistent, reliable pillar. Um, it just felt like having an NPC character in the group. Uh, I will say one problem. Um, the ma large extended board is very clear about this. It's the same on the Warden. It says on there that you can't use uh, two one-handed weapons, can't dual wield. The small version of the card, the companion card, didn't list that. So <laughs> there was a bit of confusion for a while of like, uh, what, why is there only like one shield arm or two-handed weapons? Um, and <laughs> it turns out that in this case, reading the card did not explain the card. Uh, however, the full version is clear about that. Uh, yeah. Um, and then we have the blade. Um, the blade is basically a uh, like a gladiatorial combatant who's fought his way out to the He's Colosseum. He's a World of Warcraft uh, warrior with stances. Well, I was going to say he's not really a World of Warcraft warrior, but sort of, I guess. Yeah, he has a, a stance mechanic which basically, depending on which one of his cards has the most on cooldown, he's in that particular stance. Um, which you can either be boar, viper, ox, or if you have most of your cards in the zero position, it's any. And his cards benefit from you being in different stances. It makes it quite interesting, and you pay a lot more attention to the battle flow of his stuff. Um, uh, he, he genuinely does look like someone like smashed Eldrick and He-Man together and stuffed <laughs> him in golden armor. He's incredibly Warhammer as well, but more like Aegis yeah. armor. Um, then we get on to the other slightly more complex characters. So is um, there in, dif in difficulty four? Yeah, there's the AV Harbinger. Uh, 
who is a bird character. Yeah, um, Avi. Least... It's probably Avis uh, from Letty a- the Bird. Yeah. Avian. Avian, yeah, Avian. Yeah, Avis. Yeah. yeah. Um, is uh, uh, they are listed like as mysterious in regards to gender? Makes sense. That's what birds are like. They basically look the same on the outside, um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, a lot of I saw a bit of backstabbing, some kind of like predictive stuff as well. Um, I was originally thinking about playing as the AV Harbinger on our first run. Yeah. Um, decided against it once I looked at the cards. I was like, I don't really want to be predicting what's going to happen in things. Um, but we did see, and I'll talk about it in cha- in chapter two. We had a fun little like interaction moment. It's like, oh, that makes sense. Instant uh, teleportation uh, across the board once. Yes, yes. Uh, good abilities, a lot of mobility, and an interesting selection of loadout weapons. Um, mm-hmm. Then we have uh, the witch who you played with. Yeah, I, I love the witch. I, I know it's a bit stereotypical, but she has spell. Water and fire, you begin the first chapter with all of one type, but then you can mix. And she basically generates, she has one ability to generate automatically every turn or expand one element. Basically, I won't talk about uh, this at length, but she has uh, a lot of cooldown do- cool one very useful stuff. So if you charge a witch with a lot of battle flow and uh, way to battle flow tokens and stuff like that, you basically keep playing uh, level one spells uh, to basically fill everything with puddles of water if you don't want to get reached by the monsters or with uh, fire if you want to kill the monsters when you know where they move because when you step on fire you get one damage and that's the way you kill basically everything when you know where it will move (laughs) it's worth mentioning as you did that um, the warden has ways of battle flowing other characters so this is another piece where they yeah. lock the two characters together in some interesting ways to give them more interaction. Yeah, th- th- there's also the fact that the, the witch has, has a beautiful thing, which is a firewall, which is basically you put a, a straight line of, of five fire tiles in fro- with the center in front of the witch. Then you use some item to get, uh, which get free movements to move at one end of the stuff where the monster is then you use telekinesis to uh, push the monster for or civilians actually you can do that to civilians too <laughs> you can use telekinesis to push the monster for uh, actually a number of axes depending on the dice you roll so that's basically a way to auto damage stuff uh, there's also one important thing, when something collides, they get one damage. So it's a, a, a nice way to generate damage automatically without having to roll, without having to care for, to take in account the fence. That's yeah. why I like the witch. Uh, she's, uh, she, she, dr- uh, she, she, uh, she continues tr- yes. <laughs> she continues the trend of every dungeon crawling style game since Hero Quest of the wizard magical character being like ridiculously far more complex and potentially more <laughs> powerful than almost everyone else put together. So yeah, um, we I don't we get a little pressed on time, so we're just going to briefly 
mention. Um, we have the Grove Maiden who is locked behind story stuff. She's a pet-based class, my favourite kind of classes. And then there's the character I played, who's the Huntress, who has a, I think, a complexity rating of four or five. I can't remember. She The board's still upstairs. Four or five, yes. Yep. Um, she's actually a support slash bow slash melee slash trapping character where a lot of the benefits are gained if you figure out the best and most optimal set of cards to take to a given showdown. She has a lot of different ways of playing. Um, sometimes she has stuff that's amazing against like big creatures and then other times she can have loadouts that are fantastic for dealing with lots of um, small enemies or smaller enemies um, her main gimmick is falcons though and she can send the falcons out onto other characters to deal bleeding or to help friendly characters move or to drag enemy characters into terrain to destroy it to get rid of those ugly trees and um, she, she was quite enjoyable although I don't know if I want to play her again anytime soon um because it was maybe not entirely my style and the biggest problem was trying to keep her up with bows anytime we didn't hit bows we had to shop for bows um but yeah so she's definitely the jack of all trades character i think the jack of all trades support maybe a bard that's kind of what i like position her as 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 how she would contribute you know very i can do anything so that's the characters. It's time for us to get on to discussing a little bit about the, the, the encounters and the story stuff. So we'll start with chapter one, which is the one that if you know anything at all about Oathsworn, uh, you should already know who the monster is. This is the Broodmother. So what's the introductory story section like that brings you to this fight? Oh... Well, I'll answer. <laughs> you... Yeah, that's, that's yeah. your part. Okay, yes. You basically arrive at the town of Bastogne. Uh, you arrive through the Wire Road because basically the world here is uh, completely de- engorged in, in a forest called Deepwood, which is a kind of evil trees. <laughs> I wouldn't say evil uh, uh, as much as sick trees because they are like corrupted or something like that. The only safe kind of safe way to get from a place to another is to use the wire rod which is basically a rod made of wires uh, on the on the eye branches of the trees which is uh, wires of iron. Iron is a way uh, is uh, the metal which survives the corruption and the engorgement of the Deepwood uh, best, so is the way it's used for everything as a coin. You arrive in Beston, you are Otsworn, so people who have taken the oath, so people who want to protect and defend humanity until their death. Uh, in Beston, you are charged with finding out why people is dying. So you do an investigation. This first investigation is very simple because you are basically told where to go. And uh, uh, I won't spoil the puzzles here, even if we are spoilery. So I have just to say that puzzles are are usually very well done, at least so far. And uh, basically you have to to find uh, the cause of these uh, of these killings and you will find out that uh, people uh, is being killed by rats and you track the rats uh, through the sorts which is in the deepwood the actual brood mother which is a big big rat with lots of small rats yeah uh, yep, she's and the a fight begins. character 
She's the the poster monster for the box. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a yeah, it's a big rat with uh, which spawns constantly a bunch of smaller rats. So that's the first like slight criticism I have in regards to game experience is it throws you straight into a big monster with minions right from the beginning. Yeah, crowd control. It's not a basic, uh, it's not a basic way of playing. So yeah, it's weird. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's some benefits to like smashing the monster into its brood and everything. Um, I so I want to criticize the model for one particular thing. On the whole, love this model. Okay, full of tons of character, um, but for some reason, the body torso section has different sculpting to the head and the brood rats. Um, so like, the body has a texture that. I guess maybe the the, the artist sculpting it was like, oh, this looks a bit like fur. But when you get down to painting it, it doesn't. It looks like bark. So I sat down to have a little like inspection of this, of like, how would I paint it? What would I be doing? And I was like, oh, God, this is horrible. And if I was really, really going to take my time, I'd end up filling in all of the gaps on the fur sections in order to get a smoother surface to just hand paint proper looking fur onto it. So that's my criticism. Is I don't I, I think that they could revisit the the fur on the torso. The rest of, the rest of the model is gorgeous. The tail is fantastic. It's really well detailed, and the exposed skin is all like scaly and and has indentations and everything in it. And all the little rats look fantastic, really characterful and alive. It's really just this. It's strange because the head has a smoother design. And it works a lot better for painting fur on. Um, so this is just one of those things where your average painter would probably appreciate the textures on the model as it stands. Um, but like for someone like myself, to achieve anything that looks remotely like the standee artwork is almost impossible because of the way it's been done. Encounter itself, I thought was quite fun though. Yeah, yeah. Encounter was uh, quite fun. It was. Uh... Not, I like, uh, I think I like of this game is that every encounter is perfectly balanced. I never felt that I had no chance and it doesn't matter, like Kara said at the beginning, you usually have modifiers in the form of the tokens you get during the, the story phase or you, are, you get uh, maluses like you get less HP to start at the start of the fight or you get ambushed. And I, I actually, we will talk about this, but uh, in any case, uh, this is balanced. You always have a chance. And it, it happens on every encounter. I think except chapter 6 and chapter 9, I, I never felt like I was fighting something uh, totally hard. Uh, the, the, the counterpart to this is now that I know the fight, I think that I can almost perfect it. Yeah, because the monster puts its intentions face up you know what the brood mother's going to be doing and you can plan accordingly to it a lot of detail we all played kingdom death kingdom death makes a lot of effort in trying to hide what the monsters are doing but gives you tools to figure it out and it turns out when you know what the monster is doing information really does win battles as you know the military would say so yeah yeah it's 
It still clearly is a fight that they have put a lot of time and care and love and intent and, and like attention to. It clearly is, hey, look at what this game can do. We're going to kick it off with a bang. And I think it's a good hook to bring it in. And I don't think it's a difficult scenario to win, but it's certainly an encounter to win. It's certainly a thrilling one. And I think that's such it's a good introduction to the game. Yeah, you end up battered no matter what. But you win. <laughs> yeah, well, um, go on. Yeah, I, I also... Um... I just just realized it when looking at pictures of the model again. Um, it shows there is a lot of depth to it um, because monsters have three phases. And so they start at phase one, that's the uh, first, uh, I think, six or so um, cards. Then they get to phase two and then phase three. And they also have triggers when to switch the phases. Basically, if you do enough damage, they will switch to a higher phase. And um, they do have uh, at their hit locations, hit locations that correspond to certain attacks. For example, the, the Broodmother um, bites a lot. So if you knock out its snout or its mouth, uh, her attacks become less dangerous. And, but, so you start with this. So you see, okay, she bites, so we knock out the teeth and then she becomes less dangerous. But suddenly, I'm not sure if it was the second or third phase, she starts using her tail. And if you look at the model, you see that on the tail there are like, I don't know, like, like horns or something. So if you look at the model beforehand, you could deduce this tail might be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's for the second encounter where... But, mm -hmm. oh, I, I shouldn't have said that here. Yep, yep. Yeah, uh, Alexi, Alexis, 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 chance of Alessio, yes, bleep him. Yes. <laughs> bleep, bleep that word. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we actually didn't talk too much about the hit location stuff within the main section of it. Uh, I actually think it's a um, it's a more thematic experience than, than Kingdom Death. You've, I think everyone's one time or another talked about the, but I was attacking the lion's front. Why am I stabbing it in the <laughs> butt? What, yeah. what's caused that um and this feels a little bit more more solid and realistic but uh let's let's go on to what was for me um the low point of the entire experience which was chapter two um <laughs> encounter number two um the the, it had the, the decent puzzle in the story part because yeah it's what it, it is a red it is a, a simple puzzle uh, like the first one but this one has actually a geometric sense when you uh, check the locations because you have to do that in a certain in a certain time to get a, a reward and if you want to get this reward and uh, actually uh, you have to follow a track and that's uh, interesting because it works uh, there are a few things uh, which could be spoiled which actually will solve the puzzle for you so i won't say anything more because uh, the, the only pleasure in solving a puzzle is uh, to solve it so <laughs> that's it uh, the fight uh, besides fan <laughs> yeah well you fight against a satyr that is capable of summoning nightmares um it's a big giant goat man, um, very very Warhammer feeling. Your classic 
a big beast man slash minotaur thing um on the model front uh most of it looks decent but the back of the model is it has some really odd details to it that aren't uh aren't, aren't great um to be honest i think that part hopefully could be revised in an updated version and the whole on the fight it uh it has an interesting mechanic um but it also uh, well it, it, it basically inflicts like illusionary nightmare type things on players um and this has some fun moments uh, genuinely the funniest moment was when uh, one of the characters the, the bear climbed up the tree um believing that she could fly with the link with lyrics from i believe i can fly um but for me personally like the fight was uh I, I was constantly stuck on the left hand side of the monster unable to get anywhere near its star farm it kept putting out staff attacks um it kept basically driving people away um and our party split in two different corners and for me it was it was a long long fight it was far too long than it needed to be because we were constantly being pushed away from it yeah, it had a lot of hit uh, points uh, and that uh, dragged the fight a lot, especially because with reactions you usually get uh, twice the actions uh, when you remove a die because you have a one hallucination and then the reaction. Yeah, yeah. So, not my favourite encounter. Um, thematically quite interesting, but Kara, uh, did you like it at all? Um yeah i i also felt it was quite long and the um like these um illusions or or whatever um i thought they were a nice idea but how they worked it felt kind of like a slapstick comedy um like okay hey you suddenly believe this tree is evil and start attacking it and oh you believe you can fly so you do whatever and it yeah it, it it kind of broke the theme for me. I did like, however, the text on the "you believe you can fly" thing specifically said the AV AV Harbinger isn't harmed by the drop because they have wings, which was like, <laughs> yes, nice. I like references to classes, um, but yeah, not not my favorite. In contrast to chapter three, and I do apologize, we're going to be moving fast through these because we've over-talked about the start of the game. So this is just going to be a brief impressions on each of the seven chapters um with the worm i had a terrible time during it it's i spent a lot of time being smashed against a tree by the worm but i really enjoyed this one i liked how the worm had three different segments i liked how it was a reference to dune and you could like um cause vibrations to draw the attention of, of the worm and you got rewarded for saving civilians but you could also save yourselves by making one of the civilians cause lots of noise instead uh, it was it was a fun encounter. Yeah, I have just two things to say about this. First is that you could generate vibrations everywhere except for civilians, and I learned that today. So <laughs> too late to play. I, I made it uh, unnecessarily hard on me. Uh, the other thing is that when I read on the special rules of this monster that it uh, will try to pass uh, to walk around its own uh, board section I thought I have to make this one uh, uh, go round on itself so like playing snake on a cell phone and it was beautifully beautifully fun yeah <laughs> yeah it was a nice little dune like experience 
and I think Shai Yulud. Yeah. yeah, yes, I think it's pretty good. Um, then we have the Scar tribe. Um, Toss, with, toss, toss. Yeah, yeah. So they're there with the, but it's the first time you fight non-large monsters. It's when the Asuras can start throwing the Scar tribe at each other, the Scar dudes. Um, that was quite fun, and I liked their targeting priority of if you're not got Oathsworn next to you, they're going to run off and butcher a civilian. Although, Alessio, there's one civilian who's behind the house. Did she ever get in trouble for you? We had a female <laughs> there. Uh, actually not. I think that uh, I was ambushed in this uh, fight, so they I actually managed to save just seven civilians uh, because the first four were basically killed in front of me. But uh, no, there were the, the the corner section. They were never uh, they were never attacked, especially because the fight went and stayed a, a bit a lot in stage two. Uh, I have to say it was refreshing because you draw exactly one reaction in the entire fight. So that part is beautiful <laughs> uh, because there's only one monster with uh, two dice. The other die right away. So you don't draw the last reaction for a monster. And uh, uh, it was actually very fun. I had a lot of fun playing space movement and stuff. Uh, I think that uh, the the penitent did a lot of damage there because uh, uh, it was targeted uh, and in the last turn he, has, he had like four empowerment tokens so yeah yeah uh, it was it, refreshing it was, it, it was refreshing it was fun and it was nice to uh, be able to immediately identify like there's a shaman character they're probably gonna be doing some healing and and so on although we did have some trouble figuring out exactly how the behaviors for this group were going to be at first it was um let's just say and i wanted to talk more about this when i had the opportunity but i kind of forgot but i missed it the ai card layout in this game is terrible oh uh, really bad yeah uh, no actually the card layout is uh, really bad uh, yeah, yeah, the, the artwork I'm... is good. It's mm-hmm. actually remembering Boris Vallejo in a lot of uh, impressions, but the, the the card layout is ugly. It's yeah, ugly, the... bad, and not not really visible. There's not yeah. a lot of contrast. No, the the monsters have. I, I checked. It's nearly thirty percent of the card is wasted on border art and title art, and it's completely not needed. The the back sides of them I like, but the front sides, yeah. Jamie, if you hear this, go back to those cards, remove the borders, and tighten it all up. And if you need to see how it should be done, look at Kingdom Death's AI cards. They are a masterclass in legibility. I genuinely had trouble processing these at time because I do have a, a reading disability that interferes with it, and the font and everything. I just sometimes it just bogged everything down because we could I couldn't work out what's going on and even handing it to other people sometimes it was confusing. Oh, one thing about this chapter actually, uh, if you I don't know if you play the story if you play the fast action mode, but this is Seven Continent. You actually move around the depot with cards, uh, so no, you don't the do Seven Continent to... part. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so I kind yeah. of spoiled that to you. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah, no it yeah. doesn't really matter. I'd already figured it out because there's a box and, you know, I was like, ha, ah, that's, that's this. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah. So, uh, good fight. Enjoyable. Next one, um, chapter five. That's oh, the bloatfly, which... Yeah, um, the, 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 kill, the kill the civilians part. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, as Scar pointed out, it felt a bit weird because the bloat fire would go, oh, I'm going to lay an egg inside this particular civilian and then I'm going to come and smash the Oathsworn. And Kara was like, why is it not attacking the civilians like the others were previously? <laughs> yeah. And it, 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 you can get the logic of what it's doing, but it does feel a bit weird if it's like just choosing the civilians to lay eggs in and then specifically attacking the Oathsworn. What, what's the logic? How does it know the Oathsworn are any different to everyone else who's there? So it's a bit of suspension of disbelief. This, I think, was a fun fight, the one where we most tactically played outside of Chapter 7. Um and oh, yeah. we generally pulled the monster into us rather than going to it because it kept attacking and then moving backwards. Yeah, it, it was the one fight when I decided that I had enough with the civilians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've read a bit about Jamie in the spoiler section and he's like, yeah, that's intended. <laughs> you, you are supposed to look at those civilians and consider, oh, well, they can, um, you know, maybe it's better that they don't survive. Yeah, They, they got my rations. For all yeah. the, the voyage. <laughs> yeah, it was the most body horror of all of them. But speaking of horrors, uh, chapter six. Now wow, that I think scary. everyone everyone I've seen so far agrees. Chapter six is where the difficulty like spikes up a bit. You fight three horrors, I, I think. It's just kind yeah. of the name, horrors. Uh, mm-hmm, they, yeah. they have big, long tentacle arms. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, they're going to do some grabbing and dragging and separating people. And uh, absolutely, that's part of their stuff. They are and wild. you don't know next stage card. Yeah, yeah. They they hide their next stage card. They keep it face down. It's like playing Kingdom Death without any AI location scouting. Um, and uh, this is the first one where Kara and I had to replay because the first time they just like trapped us in a group after they ambushed us, and we just couldn't get couldn't get apart until right near when things were getting very dangerous, and then they dragged everyone apart, and I think everyone dropped dead in like. One turn, it was yeah. just like, yeah. It was also, also the first fight when someone died. In my, in, among my outsworns, I am playing uh, that they faint, but uh, mm. yeah. Uh, anyway, that was the the first time someone got to zero HP. Yeah, it's, I, I also liked that in all these boss battling games, it was the first fight I encountered where this standard system of okay we have to figure out who to place where so the right person gets targeted mm-hmm. doesn't work because you fix the targets at the start of the encounter yeah and that's it <laughs> feels like a lot like a hunt yeah yeah although for us we had a service penitent warden so it's more like a shield <laughs> wall with a hunter huntress standing behind it um there were i have read other people with lighter characters ended up running through the trees and using the terrain to delay the attacks we just weathered the storm on the second time round. we were a little better with our positioning and it just it worked and we got them fairly handily in our second try we only the warden was under any trouble um as he was off by himself, but uh, it was it was a good fight and uh, interesting creatures, um, law wise and design wise. I definitely say it's one of the highlights um, for sure. So we have one more chapter we're going to talk about and then just sort of wrap things up, and that is chapter seven, which is when Oathsworn went full Warhammer, just just full Warhammer for me. That that the, the we the fight is against the Venerator. Yeah. And that is just a space marine. 
Yeah, actually, it remembered me a lot of the Purge scenario from Warcraft 3, but uh, I understand the reference. Actually, destroy the houses. <laughs> destroy the houses. Oh, yeah, that, that was like the very first thing. was. Uh, we looked at this, we looked at the Asurus, and my partner went, I'm going to trash these houses. And we were like, yes, trash these houses. Ha, um, yes, and even even without the Asurus, the Venerator is large, so you can kite him next to a building sometimes and you could knock him back into it with the various knockback attacks you have. And um, yeah, you know, I looked at the chapter discussion spoilers for that and, and Jamie's there saying, absolutely, that's that's what we left in there for people to figure out, which is a nice little, you know, something smart. And yeah. I like as well that not only is there the obvious route of if you have the bear, bear make building go smash, <laughs> bear smash, you also have the extra steps of, oh, we can actually still knock this guy or force him to walk through the buildings to destroy them. So I thought that was very cool. Yeah, telekinesis. Yeah. Although, I actually, like, I, I felt w when we started and with the story, I thought like, oh, that's awesome. But the fight itself, it, I mean, it was so simple. And it's kind of fell apart with destroying the buildings and then just pulling the venerator away from all the dead pools of blood and um, yeah it's a, yeah if you if you leave it cold to arms is not that simple but uh, yeah i understand it's actually uh, straightforward you know what you need to do yeah it felt to us like we'd cut half the fight off and just pushed it away and then we spent all our time in the northeast corner, smacking him around. Um, and eventually he wandered back into the middle and did Blood Rain. Um, but he did that so late that it just wasn't going to take anyone out. And um, he he dropped, like, just barely reaching into his stage three. He was gone. So, um, so I can just imagine that fight being really difficult if you don't twig that you need to destroy the yeah. buildings. Yeah, you you must take the time to do that because uh, it, it's it's hard uh, and cold ones is actually it, it can ruin your day. Uh, I can especially with not with uh, if you are not using companions. I can see your action going completely wasted if you leave it go uh, for a long time. And yeah. anyway, unfortunately, speaking of time, I think yep. there's no time to talk about chapter eight. Well, we, we, chapter. <laughs> we never got that far anyway. Um, so, but I'd already twigged on what was happening because there's only only one board instead of two. So I already knew what was going on. Um, but yes, uh, it, that, so that's where we're going to stop. Um, so final points for me. I think, and we'll each have our quick final points wrap up and then we're done. So for me, uh, I think Oathsworn's absolutely fantastic. Uh, I think it is like the core game is, is close to like a must buy for anyone who really enjoys boss battling games, enjoys campaign games, likes a really well written story uh, and all of that. But I do think that Jamie needs to go back and take a look at accessibility uh, tokens need more distinguishing um, colors there's problems with reroll tokens empower tokens and battle flow tokens all looking similar you can't glance across yeah. the board and see what people have except for animus and defense which are very clear um, and the ai cards really could do with a rehaul on the front you know breaking separate actions apart is a a good thing yeah just have a line spacing between each one and get some more space in there. There's, there's too much art on the cards. 
I'd like to say as a real nitpick, you don't need the class symbol on both sides of the uh, of the cards that are used, you know, the action cards. You really don't. You don't ever shuffle them up. You don't mix them around. The back is good enough. Get yourself some extra space on the front. Take that class symbol off and make it a bit less busy. Yeah. Um, so It's also a table hog, so a lot of mm-hmm. stuff could be a bit uh, condensed, like yeah. ch- uh, player boards, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but my complaints to the game are all minor nitpicks, mostly around based around accessibility, because I had accessibility issues with this, which I've not had with any other boss battle I've played previously. Um, but that, like, that's a personal thing, also accessibility thing. Um, so that I, I thoroughly recommend the game. It's really enjoyable. My partner really enjoyed it. We're gonna like play from the beginning now and play through the full story. Um, it's been fantastic. Uh, and I think just the core game with the standees is good enough that most people should be seriously thinking about backing it when it comes around again. Um, yeah, in and, October, possibly. And my final point before I shut up is to say I love how modular the difficulty in this game is. Choose your difficulty level. You can slide it up and down while playing. You can choose to roll dice. You can choose to pick the cards. You can mix that. However suits people, there's so much, like, so many options. And it's refreshing to see someone make a hard game, but also be like, and here are a bunch of official ways to play it of different difficulties and different styles. Go go nuts. So yeah. two thumbs up, nine out of ten. Yeah, it's beautiful how this game, uh, the part which could have flopped so hard, uh would have been the fact that you could customize any way you wanted and it works perfectly uh, a lot of work has been done honing this aspect and it shows uh, i have another complaint but this is because i actually had i i didn't think uh, uh, i had this complaint until i checked on the forums that a few of the rules i got wrong and it always happened because there are exceptions a lot of the rules have continuously exceptions and maybe this stuff could be streamlined or a bit of warning box could be uh, actually again accessibility it uh, the, the exception could be shown uh, with a bit of relevance uh, with uh, they could be highlighted because uh, there are a lot of exceptions in this game, so it's important to, to make them known. Yep, and Kara, final thoughts? Final thoughts? Um, I agree with your criticism. Um, nothing to, to change there. Um, I still stand at I don't really see the value. Uh, yes, um, like money per material that's totally fine but i feel it's kind of overproduced for what it is um it could have gotten the more or less the same experience with just you know less and for less money for example i don't know why there are so many characters that's actually something that kind of turns me off because on the one hand i'm a completionist on the other hand i could not imagine myself playing this game multiple times just to get the experience of each character. Um, so yeah, it's, um, I mean, even with our six chap- seven chapters, I felt like, okay, I'm only playing the warden. I would like to see the other characters, 
but I also would like to see the warden. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and... yeah. Very deep characters, a lot of them, and you've got two ways to play each character as well, which is kind of staggering that they've done all this work. Yeah, and uh, then the core pledge, I mean, it's kind of, it's you have to decide for yourself how you see it. I don't like mixing miniatures and standees. In the first fight where there were uh, civilians, we mistakenly used the standees because we didn't uh, get that there were, was a box with the miniatures in it. And I didn't like it. I, I just thought it looked wrong. So for me, the idea of having miniatures for the characters, but then standees for the uh, enemies doesn't feel right. So, yeah. I have a question for you. Do you have that same problem with Gloomhaven? I haven't played Gloomhaven. Well, Gloomhaven is currently standees for monsters, miniatures for players. Yeah, and bad miniatures for the players. <laughs> there will be a miniatures Kickstarter for them at some point, but yeah. I didn't realise you had to play Gloomhaven. Um, otherwise, we'd probably be comparing to that a bit. Uh, okay, but well, that is... Um, we're out of time in this podcast. That's our O-Sworn uh, discussion. I'm thinking I might write some more about it in the future, a written review, but uh, that's probably after I've finished the campaign. Um, so thank you for listening to The Last Standee. You can catch us over at www.patreon.com forward slash The Last Standee or follow us on Twitter as The Last Standee. Um, catch us uh, on Board Geek and various socials and uh, our individual things. Um, and you can listen to us and subscribe on your preferred podcast app. So it's a farewell and a return into the forest for Alessio. Goodbye. Uh, it's a nice trip to civilization for Kara. <laughs> Bye. And it's a wandering over, retreading uh, stories I've already played through a second time for me. And remember that the second E in Standee is for encounter. Bye.